So, uh, first of all, I'm, I'm very happy to be here, and I'm actually really glad to see that some people have a specific interest in women's pain syndromes. I'm hoping this group will grow in the near future. Um, for, and then I just want to take a tally. How many people here are primary care? Good. And any GYNs or women's? Okay, one. Great, great. And the rest, I'm just assuming uh, anybody from pharmacy or anesthesia in here? Great, excellent. Okay, so we have a very nice uh, non-GYN group, except for the two of us. Um, that always makes it a lot more fun for me. First of all, I just want you to know, um, I have no financial uh, disclosures to make. I, I do a lot of research. I'm actually a clinician. I spend about 60% of my time in clinical care and about 40% in research. So I have research funding, but no other um, disclosures to make. And today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the physiology of, of dysmenorrhea. And we're going to talk about um, how dysmenorrhea women are different as far as pain sensitivity. And we're going to talk about how do we integrate our current understanding of how dysmenorrhea works into our actual clinical practice. And um, I, like I said, I'm a researcher. So I'll, sometimes it's very easy for me to lose track of the fact that everything we do in research somehow has to translate into clinical practice. Um, and I try to remember not to do that too often. And so at the end, I really, at the end of this talk, I really want it to be clinically applicable. I, I want, if you've been taking care of dysmenorrhea patients, then I wanna hopefully change the way you take care of them uh, so that it's done the right way. And uh, if you haven't been taking care of chronic dysmenorrhea patients, then great. Uh, you don't have any negative influences that I have to worry about. Okay, so let's start with a case. You have a 23-year-old uh, Gravita Zero. She comes into your office complaining of progressively worsening pelvic pain. She has no medical problems. She's never had surgery. Her pain lasts one to two days before every menstrual cycle and seems to be getting longer and longer as far as the length of the cycle and the duration of the pain. Uh, she has pain in the pelvis and the lower back and spreading down to her thighs. Um, she has a lot of low back pain. She can't sleep. She's fatigued. She has a lot of nausea and diarrhea when she has this pain, but she doesn't have any bloody stools or fevers or anything like that. She's very frustrated and crying, and she wants you to do something about this. So how many people have seen this in their practice? Good. Yeah, if you're taking care of women, you will see that a lot in your practice. Uh, and so what we want to talk about today is what factors do we need to consider when we're taking care of this type of patient, and, um, and, and what are the treatment options, which we'll go through at the end. Um, here are some of the options that I gave you for the CME question. Uh, it's, in your, it's in your slides, and we're going to uh, go through these, but hopefully don't pick an answer yet. Well, pick it in your mind or something, right? But you have the option to do a brief abdominal exam, which is negative. You decide to give her some acetaminophen with hydrocodone for her pain and some alprazolam for her anxiety, and you send her off on her merry way. Second option you have is to get a urine drug screen, a pregnancy test, an ultrasound. Both are negative, so you decide to tell her to wait and see what happens and to let you know if the pain gets better or worse. Um, so option C is you focus on obtaining a more extensive pain history that assesses the temporality and other uh, associated symptoms and previous treatments, and you do an abdominal and pelvic exam, which is normal. You prescribe some uh, oral contraceptives to suppress her menstruation and NSAIDs for her pain. And option number D is you do a brief abdominal exam, which is negative, and then you give her a battery of pain questionnaires because you just came to the pain uh, pain week course, and you learned all about the biopsychosocial of pain, and you give her all these questionnaires to fill out. 
you tell her to come back when she's finished completing the questionnaires. So those are your options. Save your answer until the end, and I'll tell you what I think my answer is. Maybe you disagree. But let's first start with the basics. So what is dysmenorrhea? First of all, it's pain, painful menstrual cramps. Um, and uh, it's usually characterized as primary or secondary dysmenorrhea. Primary dysmenorrhea is basically uh, painful uh, menstruation. Um, and uh, you, the, the thing that differentiates primary from secondary is the onset. So primary dys dysmenorrhea usually starts within the first year of menstruation. So very, very, very young women. Um, it's always predictable and temporal uh, in its temporal pattern, and it's uh, sometimes associated with pretty significant nausea and vomiting. And for those of you who have been to the visceral pain syndrome talks and you know how the neurobiology in the pelvis um, is a little bit com complex because the uterus, the bowel, the bladder, they all share the same neural pathways. So there were these really cool experiments done by this woman. Uh, her name is Ursula Wesselman. She's a fabulous researcher. And Best thing she ever did in her life, she took this little mouse, female mouse, and she stimulated the uterus. And as she was doing that, she saw the bowel contract, and the thing would start pooping. And then she stimulated the bowel, and as she stimulated the bowel, she watched the uterus contract, and, and she watched the mouse pee on itself. And so from that, those little very simple experiments, she was able to actually demonstrate that uh, um, all of those pelvic organs actually share neural pathways. Secondary dysmenorrhea usually happens uh, after, on average, at least two years of a non-painful period. So these are women that have no pain on, um, on onset, so on menarche, and then a few years later they start developing pain and irregular um, bleeding patterns or heavier bleeding patterns. And, and in the case of secondary dysmenorrhea, we reserve that diagnosis for, um, for women who most of the time we find something wrong with them. So we'll either find endometriosis, adenomyosis, fibroids, but secondary dysmenorrhea is different in its onset, but also in the fact that it usually has some associated pathology with it, which is different than primary dysmenorrhea. And let's just review the normal uh, female menstrual cycle for a little bit, because this is key in uh, pathogenesis of dysmenorrhea. So what happens is uh, uh, all the women in this room, including myself, were floating around in estrogen and progesterone. Uh, our ovaries are busy making those two hormones always until you hit menopause, basically. But at different types of the cycle, which is usually somewhere in the middle of the cycle, about 10 to um, 8 to 10 days or so after the onset of menstruation, estrogen levels start climbing. Then estrogen um, makes the lining of the endometrium of the uterus become thickened and fluffy. And then uh, we ovulate, and after we ovulate, what remains of the egg is called the corpus luteum, and that tissue starts producing progesterone. So progesterone levels start going up very suddenly, and progesterone helps organize the endometrium. So it's very fluffy and disorganized in the first stage of the cycle, and then in the second stage of the cycle, it becomes thick and plump and very even. And at the end of the cycle, estrogen and progesterone levels fall, and when that happens, that's when the lining of the uterus starts shedding, and we sense what's called menstruation. So when the corpus luteum regresses and progesterone levels start falling, that's we think, is the sentinel event in the pathogenesis of dysmenorrhea. Um, what happens is progesterone actually 
help stabilize lysosomes. So when the levels drop, lysosome um, and, and cell wall phospholipids kind of start breaking away. And, and then um, that whole pathway, which I've outlined here, and nobody needs to remember, leads to the production of arachidonic acid and prostaglandins. And prostaglandins then mediate uterine contractions, vasoconstriction, hypersensitization of nerve cell fibers, and lead to pain. So if we could just keep progesterone levels high, you'd think we would be golden, right? So we know all of this because there's lots of evidence that implicates uh, progesterone and prostaglandins in the pathogenesis of dysmenorrhea. So we know that women with dysmenorrhea have higher levels of prostaglandins in endometrial or uterine biopsies and pelvic fluid washings uh, when they're compared to women who don't have dysmenorrhea. So they just have non-painful menstruation. Um, we also know that, know that the severity of pain is directly proportional to the level of prostaglandin in those samples. So the higher the prostaglandin, the worse the pain. Um, we also know that when we give women prostaglandins, we can make them develop dysmenorrhea-like symptoms. And the opposite of that is true as well. When we give prostaglandin antagonists, or so to speak, things that suppress prostaglandin production, we can improve their pain. What's interesting about prostaglandins is that we have a boatload of prostaglandins in our human body, right? There's nine classes of prostaglandins, but only two of them are bad actors in dysmenorrhea. Um, so prostaglandin F2-alpha and prostaglandin E2. Those are the only two that have been shown to cause myometrial contraction or relaxation and um, really potent vasoconstriction of myometrial tissue. And if you, I always explain it to, uh, like, non-GYN folks. I say, listen, it's like your uterus is going to the gym and getting a massive nonstop workout for two days. That's basically what's happening to that muscle. And um, uh, dysmenorrheic women also have, interesting, they have, they have more contractions. So their uterus, as it's trying to evacuate that blood, contracts a lot more. They're stronger, more potent contractions than a, a eumenorrheic woman. And they're also more um, haphazard. So usually what happens is the uterus has very kind of coordinated contraction pattern as it tries to evacuate the blood. So it starts, you know, from the top of the uterus and it kind of moves everything down until it, the, the clots are out. But in dysmenorrheic women, they're just haphazardly contracting and they're actually not able to evacuate that blood as well, which I think it's really interesting. The impact of dysmenorrhea is also very well documented. We know that we, the prevalence is highly underestimated because most women and healthcare providers think it's normal to have menstrual cramps. So we don't screen women, you know, we don't ask them, hey, how's your menstruation today? <laughs> uh, I wish we did. But uh, we think about 45 to 95%, somebody says it's just cramps, <laughs> uh, 45 to 95% of menstruating women experience some form of uh, painful menstruation. And about, of those, about 25% have what we qualify as severe dysmenorrhea. And so for us, it's the most common gynecologic chronic pain disorder. And I believe this is actually the first time we've ever talked about it here. So I'm uh, very excited to be here. There are some risk factors that have been associated with dysmenorrhea, such as our earlier age of menstruation, smoking, alcohol use, higher BMI, a family history, uh, and nulliparity. Unfortunately, getting rid of some of these risk factors have not impacted the prevalence of uh, dysmenorrhea, but we do think they're risk factors nonetheless. The quality of life of women uh, with dysmenorrhea is uh, also well documented. Most of women, it's like clockwork. They all use the same words. Sharp, crampy pain. And it's here and here and going down to my thighs somewhere. And sometimes I have to double over in pain. 
which is a very characteristic uh, dysmenorrhea stance. Uh, and in fact, if you were to go around um, schools, like uh, whenever girls start menstruating, what is that, middle school, right? If you were to go around schools and, and just look at infirmaries and start taking pictures of girls, half of the time, if you saw a girl in the, in the, in the infirmary, it, was, it would be in that fetal position that women have when they menstruate. And the key thing about this pain is that it's recurrent. I mean, I hope today that I can convince you by showing you the data that we have that by all uh, data that we have, this actually should be considered as a chronic pain syndrome, and it is not currently, but I hope to change your mind. So the physical experience of pain in women with dysmenorrhea, again, it's also very well documented. There's a lot of uh, women report a lot of restricted physical activity due to this pain. Impaired sleep, quality and efficiency, fatigue, uh, and it's actually the primary cause for recurrent short-term school and work uh, absenteeism in the United States uh, among reproductive age women. And about uh, 10 to 30 percent of all working or studying women will miss on average one to two days, uh, working days or school days a month because of this type of pain. Um, that amounts to about 600 million hours of loss in productivity and about $2 billion in costs. And guess what? This is the first time we're talking about this here. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, women with dysmenorrhea do have, um, uh, they demonstrate higher agitation and poor mood during uh, menstruation. Um, they have higher rates of depression and anxiety, um, and uh, these have been associated with both primary and secondary dysmenorrhea. So the big question that I have to convince you of today, is dysmenorrhea really a chronic pain syndrome? Should we be treating these women differently? And um, the, first of all, I'd like to start with the definition of, I started with definition of chronic pelvic pain, but you probably could fill in any other pain syndrome in this definition. So this is the clinical definition of chronic pelvic pain, and it's defined as pain that lasts longer than six months. It can be cyclical or non-cyclical, and I would say dysmenorrhea fulfills that criteria because it's like a lifetime of pain. Um, it has to be associated with disability and poor, poor quality of life and poor sexual function. Uh, it has to be located in the pelvis and lower abdomen or lower back. And it's pain that's not responsive to simple therapies. And this is where dysmenorrhea is different, right? Because the majority of dysmenorrhea, as you'll see, does respond to initial treatments. That's what makes it such a beautiful pain syndrome. It's one of the easy ones to treat. Um, but there are about 25% of women who do not respond to initial therapies, and they would fall into this category. So the diagnostic criteria for a chronic pelvic pain syndrome are fulfilled by dysmenorrhea just like they are for this chronic pelvic pain diagnostic criteria. So does dysmenorrhea share the same chronic pain physiology as other chronic pain syndromes? Is it, does it, is it a recurrent nociceptive input? Uh, is it, does it demonstrate the women with dysmenorrhea demonstrate structural CNS changes? Um, do they have signs of central sensitization and increased sensitivity to pain stimuli? Do they have increased susceptibility to pain, uh, comorbidities, and psychological distress? So I'm going to go through a little bit of very fun um, data. Um, this was uh, a study done in uh, early, uh, mid-2009, 2010. It's been actually replicated a couple of times since then. And what the investigators did here is they took eumenorrheic women and dysmenorrheic women, and they did functional MRIs and just compared to see what their brains look like. And they 
and did a little bit of testing and so forth, but basically what they found is that dysmenorrheic women compared to controls have heightened cerebral activity and response to noxious stimuli. So they actually, you can see this at the level of the brain in dysmenorrhea women. They have altered cerebral metabolism, okay, so different neurotransmitters at different levels, just like you wouldn't see in other chronic pain syndromes. And they have altered cerebral structure. So the gray matter in these women is abnormal. Um, so they have abnormal gray matter decreases in regions involved in pain processing, pain transmission, pain processing. They have um, lower levels of pain inhib inhibition. Um, so they don't modulate pain as well as uh, eumenorrheic women. This is another series of studies done by Katie Vincent. She's actually, this is a British uh, research group. And this is one of the first ones that she published in 2011. She, too, did a whole bunch of functional MRI tests and blood tests and exposed women to different painful stimuli and then looked to see how their brain reacted. And she found that women with dysmenorrhea do not deactivate brain regions that respond to pain. So they basically do not inhibit pain well, okay, and they feel too much pain. So they have impaired pain inhibition and pain perception is augmented. This is a very nice study. So we know, like any other chronic pain syndrome, dysmenorrhea women do show changes at the level of the CNS, just like everyone else. But it's a little bit more complex than that. This is actually a, a there's a group of researchers at the University of Michigan, and it's actually bigger than that. Um, and this was done by uh, the lead in this. Her name was Susie Asani, and she uh, is a gynecologist. And what they did is they took about uh, 9,000 women who had had a hysterectomy, and uh, they figured out who had a hysterectomy for endometriosis and chronic pelvic pain. And out of that 9,000, they had about 3,700 women who had had hysterectomy for chronic pain syndromes. And then um, the first thing that they noticed is that amongst these group of women who had um, surgery for chronic pelvic pain, only 21% actually had endometriosis on pathology. The th second thing that they noticed is that amongst the women who had an indication uh, that was endometriosis for surgery, only 42% actually had endometriosis. So all these women have pain or endometriosis, they're having surgery. But most of the time, we're not finding what we need to be finding uh, at the time of surgery. So for the group of women where there was no pre-op diagnosis of chronic pelvic pain or endometriosis, the surgeons found that 8% of them had endometriosis. So the first thing that they concluded was that not all women with endometriosis and chronic uh, have chronic pelvic pain, and not all women with chronic pelvic pain have endometriosis. So what they did is they took it to the next step. And they divided women into these two groups. They had a group, and I don't know if this is going to work. Maybe. So they had a group with chronic pelvic pain and a group with endometriosis. And then they subcategorized the women who had chronic pelvic pain, and we found endometriosis at the time of surgery, compared to women who had chronic pelvic pain and there was no pathology at the time of surgery. And then they did the same thing for the endometriosis group. They subcategorized women who had the indication for endometriosis and chronic pelvic pain, and then no chronic pelvic pain. And what they found is that women with chronic pelvic pain, both with and without endometriosis, exhibited higher levels of hyperalgesia at non-pelvic sites, as well as decreases in gray matter, so they did functional MRIs, decreases in gray matter volumes in areas associated with pain processing, suggesting a similar problem of pain amplification. So the issue here was not endometriosis. The issue was that these women were different centrally 
if they had chronic pelvic pain. And this was like a big aha moment for us because we're like, oh, wait a minute. We're busy doing all these surgeries on women who have chronic pain. Well, we really should be looking at their brain first. Okay. <clears throat> so they did a couple more studies, and this is another one that they just published, actually. I think that came out this year. And basically, um, they looked at women with endometriosis, so asymptomatic, meaning women that just had endometriosis and no pain. And they looked at women who were symptomatic. So they had endometriosis and chronic pelvic pain, and then they had healthy controls, no endometriosis, no pain. And what they found is that compared, basically just confirming their previous findings, compared to healthy controls, women with endometriosis and chronic pelvic pain had higher concentrations of excitatory neurotransmitters in the anterior insula, so heightened pain perception, altered brain structure, higher pain sensitivity, anxiety, and depression. And patients with endometriosis but no chronic pelvic pain, they looked, guess like what? They looked like the controls. So that pretty much cinched it for us. <laughs> All right, so now we know for sure, sort of, uh, about as sure as we can be, that there are structural alterations throughout the central nervous system that are mediated by the chronic pain, not so much by the pathology at the level of the uterus. Oops. I apologize for the, the, when they transferred my slides, they got all discombobulated. So we have other studies, and uh, we, know now, we now know that compared to controls, women dysmenorrhea have heightened pain sensi uh, intensity responses to some painful evoking stimuli, um, such as heat, ischemia, and pressure stimuli. So we've been able to test these women in laboratory settings now. They have higher intestinal um, sensitivity, um, even if they don't have any GI complaints. Um, and they have higher pain intensity responses um, across the menstrual cycle. So they're not, their heightened and abnormal pain sensitivity is not abnormal just when they're menstruating. It's abnormal all the time. And this is key, right? Because now this makes us think more of a, again, more of a centrally mediated pain syndrome than it does of a peripheral mediated pain syndrome. These studies were done by Grano, and they were just published in, they started doing this in 2006, and they've published, 2001, excuse me, and they've published a lot more since then. I'm not going to bore you with all of that. So we've documented um, central sensitization changes and increased pain sensitivity in dysmenorrhea patients. And so the next question was, is there an increased susceptibility to other co chronic pain comorbidities, like we see in other chronic pain syndromes? You know, they tend to run together in the same patient. And so the answer to that is yes. We have really good research now that shows that both depression and anxiety are strongly associated with primary and secondary dysmenorrhea. And compared to controls, women with dysmenorrhea have higher levels of anxiety state, uh, and higher levels of depression. So it's not just that they're depressed, but they're worse off as well. Women with IBS are more likely to have dysmenorrhea control uh, compared to non-IBS controls. Women with dysmenorrhea have more comorbid chronic pelvic pain, um, and actually, as of not too long ago, we started reclassifying dysmenorrhea as a chronic pelvic pain syndrome. Women with dysmenorrhea, um, and, and this was done in patients with, with or without IBS, so these were original IBS studies. They found that women, when they had dysmenorrhea, they also had more lumbar and abdominal pain syndromes as well. Um, that's a typo there. And then um, there's also an association between dysmenorrhea and overactive uh, bladder syndromes. So this is very, very interesting, but it's also very important in the way we take care of these patients because we are not used to screening um, 
for dysmen when women show up with dysmenorrhea, we don't screen for these other chronic pain syndromes. And when women show up with dysmenorrhea, we don't realize that they're more susceptible to these chronic pain syndromes. And so we have to be more aggressive at treating dysmenorrhea early on because these women present really early on. Okay, so our evaluation of dysmenorrhea, um, and this, is, uh, this may be a little bit repetitive for the one GYN in the room, but hopefully not for everyone else. So we evaluate, we now put dysmenorrhea in the context of a chronic pain syndrome, and we use an acronym, and you guys have like a gazillion acronyms. This is just mine, because it's the one that I can remember, right? But we define dysmenorrhea in terms of its timing, so duration longer than three months, whether a patient has cyclical pain only, or whether a patient has cyclical and continuous pain. We also like to document the impact of the pain on the patient. So we document whether it's associated with any kind of disability or impairment of activities. Sleep and fatigue are huge, right? Because these are working young women. They're going to school and they're spending two days in pain. And so if you do that in long enough, eventually your sleep patterns become impaired. We document the location of the pain and we also document whether it's been responsive to other therapies. The other thing that we do now that's different is we don't just straight jump to the pelvic exam in, in gynecology. We actually do what everybody else has been doing for a while, which is we document the mood and the affect of the patient uh, and whatever other measures of psychiatric health you want to use. We do a full musculoskeletal exam because a lot of these women have associated pelvic floor myalgias and uh, vaginal, pelv uh, pelvic, uh, vaginal myalgias, so a lot of them have dyspareunia as well. And then uh, we do an abdominal exam, you know, just to make sure we rule out any masses or anything like that. And then we do a pelvic exam that actually starts with a single-digit exam, and then we do a speculum exam. Okay. The only test that's really indicated in the um, – let me go back here for a second. The only test that is indicated in the evaluation of dysmenorrhea is a pelvic ultrasound, basically. And if you see any unusual discharge, then you can do your vaginal cultures. But there's really not much else. We rely on history just like you do for any other pain syndrome. And then what kinds of treatments do we have? Well, we have lots of options, actually. Uh, most people are just familiar with NSAIDs and OCPs. So we can start with NSAIDs. So they inhibit prostaglandin synthesis, right? They block cyclooxygenase. And cyclooxygenase is, is usually, you know, it's, it's a... It's a good thing, bad thing kind of uh, enzyme, right? Because it does, you know, cyclooxygenase activity leads to protection of the bowel mucosa, and you do get antiplatelet aggregation and things like that. But it has a lot of uh, inflammatory action as well, right? So when we block COX-1 and COX-2, we get the good side effects of blocking pain, but we get the bad side effects of interfering with bowel function and protection. So we have to be very careful with that. Nonetheless, there are a ton of NSAIDs on the market that you can try. Most people tell women to just take Motrin, but we all know there's a ton of NSAIDs, and they all have different types of activities, and they act at different levels of the COX inhibitory pathway. So this is just my list. I'm sure you guys have, like, a way bigger list than this. Maybe. I don't know. I think I, I included most NSAIDs on this list. But uh, some women respond to just regular oral aspirin. Some women respond to ibuprofen. Sometimes you have to use meloxicam. You know, sometimes I use paroxicam. It just depends on how severe the pain is and what the patient has tried in the past and whether they have a history of 
gastric problems or hypertension or impaired renal function, because those are the three things that we have to watch with NSAID use. But the key thing with NSAID use in dysmenorrheic women is that, first of all, the studies show it's highly effective. I mean, chances are you're going to fix your patient by putting them on NSAIDs early. But the key thing is you have to put them on NSAIDs early because the prostaglandin inhibitory pathway actually takes about one to two days to get to completion. So remember, you're trying to prevent prostaglandin release because once the release has happened, you're only going to get partial effects. So the key thing is starting these NSAIDs before the patient starts menstruating, about one to two days before they start menstruating. So they have to time their menstrual cycle. And then there's hormonal suppression. So there's hormonal suppression that you can do with oral contraceptives, with the vaginal ring, with injectable hormones like Depo-Provera, uh, and um, you have injectable GnRH agonists, right? For patients that have severe pain, you can do that. The key thing about suppression is if you're going to suppress menstruation, suppress menstruation. Stop it completely. Have the patient take continuous OCPs. We now know this is safe in younger women. The only side effect is irregular bleeding, so you might want to do continuous OCPs for three months at a time and then let them have a time cycle so they know when it's coming and it's not like in the middle of graduation or something like that. But for the most part now in dysmenorrhea, we recommend full suppression of the menstrual cycle. We have lots of data that it is relatively safe to do that. And then there's the levonorgestrel IUD now, which is uh, great for women who have abnormal, uh, heavy menstrual flow and dysmenorrhea. It takes about three months to work, but when it works, it works beautifully. And again, the big, big, big thing is full suppression of menstrual cycles. We do have some studies on alternative therapies such as heat and exercise and acupuncture and dietary changes. The data on that is not so good sleep, rest, and meditation, and those are moderately effective, about 40% of the time, and it's all perceived effectiveness, so you'll just have to try and see it. But NSAIDs are still first-line therapy, and hormonal suppression is second-line in, in dysmenorrhea. And then if you have someone who has secondary dysmenorrhea or dysmenorrhea that doesn't uh, respond to those initial treatments, then you need to go searching for causes, right? So you do an ultrasound to look for fibroids and things like that. Uh, if it's a patient who has really bad pain, you might consider having them have a laparoscopy to look for endometriosis. Um, we now have quite a bit of literature in the endometriosis uh, world that shows that intervening earlier is actually better as far as preventing chronification of pain. Okay? And we can be a lot more aggressive if someone has endometriosis. So for someone with endometriosis, we would put them on GnRH agonists for like a year if needed. Um, so uh, it helps the, the gynecologist to know whether there is endometriosis or not, and the way we figure out when to intervene is by first figuring out who fails those initial therapies. And then for women who are done with childbearing, um, there is also um, um, uterine uh, um, uh, ablations where we can stop menstruation, and whether it fixes the pain or not, it's about a 50-50 shot, but it does help in a good percentage of women. And then for women who are really done with childbearing, yeah, those women, if they failed initial therapies, we would recommend a hysterectomy. We no longer take out women's ovaries, just so you know. So that's the good news from the GYN world. But we have a lot of unanswered questions when it comes to dysmenorrhea. Um, we have better treatments. We know it's a chronic pain syndrome, but we still don't know which comes first. Is it the CNS abnormality that leads to dysmenorrhea, or is it the other way around? 
Um, are these changes reversible? And this is our, literally the next research, big research question that we need to answer. Uh, are, are we, if we start therapy early on, can we see these, these CNS changes improve? We know the pain can improve, um, but we don't know whether the brain can actually improve. And we don't know if by treating them early, we can actually prevent women from developing those other chronic pain syndromes. We need to know whether dysmenorrhea is a, a precursor to other chronic pain syndromes. I think that a lot of the data suggests that it is, but we still don't know for sure. And the dysmenorrhea group of women is an ideal group to study because we see them really, really early on when they're young, before they've developed all of this other badness. So the temporality of that is very important, of that relationship, excuse me. We need to figure out whether there are additional genetic and environmental risk factors for dysmenorrhea. Good luck. <laughs> it's like, who wants to study that? Go right ahead. Not me. And we need to figure out whether dysmenorrhea that is unresponsive to regular treatments, right, so NSAIDs and so forth, whether that's really dysmenorrhea. Should we even be calling it dysmenorrhea? So here is uh, the patient we had before. This is, uh, I picked C. <laughs> I hope nobody picked A, okay? <laughs> I know we have a lot of debates in this at this conference about opioids, but I can tell you for a fact there's no evidence whatsoever that opioids should be used in treatment of dysmenorrhea, okay? Now, we could talk about, you know, chronic pain and so forth, okay, but initial evaluation for dysmenorrhea, opioids, any form of opioid has no, no room. The evidence is overwhelmingly positive in the, in the NSAID side, okay? So in summary, I hope I'm, am I okay for time? Okay, good. Um, dysmenorrhea is really not just a matter of dysfunctional, uh, dysfunctional peripheral organ. It really isn't, and we need to wake up to that fact. Um, CNS and pain sensitivity changes in dysmenorrhea are not just merely associated with menstruation, uh, which means that these things impact women outside the menstrual cycle in their daily lives. So uh, we need to keep that in mind. Dysmenorrhea has features common to other chronic pain syndromes consistent with central sensitization. So if you see that need to worry. Um, and it severely impacts young women. This is the only time, I cannot say this enough, it's the only chance we have to intervene early in the prevention of pain chronification. So please screen women, young women, reproductive age women for this. Unlike any other chronic pain syndromes, early screening and treatment is possible and should be done. So if you're taking care of women, ask them every once in a while, hey, how's your last menstrual cycle, and see what they say. Okay. That's me. I'll take any questions. Yes. I understand that avoiding opioids initially in treatment with the other patient fails to respond to anesthetics that are effective, I think. So here's the problem, and I, I'm so glad you asked me this question. <laughs> here's the problem with opioids in most of the chronic pain syndromes, pelvic pain syndromes. What's the primary, one of the most common side effects you see with prolonged opioid use? Constipation. That is a massive impact on the pelvis. If you have a pain, was, a patient who has chronic pelvic pain, and then you get them constipated, good luck. Well, it is. I mean, you just have to, so the, the, the reply was, that's easy to get around. Uh, yes, except it's been my experience that most of the patients that I see that are on opioids, no one is addressing that issue until they actually come and see me. So if you're going to use opioids for your severe cases, 
do so, that's fine. If it works for your patient, that's fine. But be mindful of the side effects, okay? Because in the pelvis, things are a little bit different. The other thing that you get, um, which is, you know, I mean, I think it's something that you, we, I, I don't know uh, how many of you were here last year, but couple, the past couple of years, we've had a talk on gender differences in pain. And one of the things that we know about women is women use, uh, so their coping mechanisms for, uh, with pain coping mechanisms are a little bit different than men, right? They use a lot of uh, emotional encouragement, uh, uh, social uh, interactions are very, very important coping mechanisms for women. And when we leave women who have chronic dysmenorrhea on long-term opioids, right, and they're still menstruating, so most of the time if you're going to do opioids, for sure make sure you stop their menstruation, okay? Because if you let them menstruate, what are they doing during that time of the cycle? Right, they're crazy, right? They're all hormonal, as people call it, right? They're depressed, they're anxious. They're, uh, and when you've been on chronic opioids for a long time, those shifts tend to be amplified. So you just need to warn your patient about that. Um, just know women are different in some ways, and we have to adjust. Let me take this lady, and then I'll come back to you. So the question was, if they can't tolerate NSAIDs, what would be a good second line? Am I assuming that we've suppressed menstruation completely? Okay. So a good second line, I mean, I tend to use, uh, so, so it, again, it depends on what kind of pain we're talking about. Is it just cyclical pain? In which case you can use short-term opioids, right, just during menstruation. Right. So I'm really glad you brought this lady up. 28-year-old female who's had everything sounds like under the sun, including an ablation and a hysterectomy, and she still has pelvic pain. So do you think someone who has dysmenorrhea and has had a hysterectomy, are we really dealing with a uterine problem? Right. That is not a dysmenorrhea patient anymore, right? She's centralized. She's totally different. And so I treat her no different than any other chronic pain patient. I use TCAs. I use neuroleptics. If I have to use low-dose opioids, I'll do that. Um, yeah, I treat them like any other chronic pain patient. Now, the, the key thing, though, and that I have to say about the pelvis is many times women still have pain because they have an associated pelvic floor myalgia. And they don't, they don't, no one investigates this. No one does, you know, a single-digit exam to test the pelvic floor muscles and sends pa uh, the patient to physical therapy and so forth. And so, you know, again, we have to make sure we have the right diagnosis. She may have started out with dysmenorrhea, then became, you know, a totally different person, you know, like the ones we see in our chronic pain world. And she may have a secondary myalgia that no one's addressing. So those patients, you know, I do a very different exam, and I do all sorts of other things that you would do for patients with myalgias, including pelvic floor physical therapy, blocks, Botox, you name it. We try all sorts of things. Experimental, by the way. I acknowledge that. What does that mean? If she was raped. Right. So, absolutely. So can you have patients that, but now I will ask you this. What are the, so the question was, 
What if it was psychosomatic because eventually you figured out she had a history of rape? Right. So, yes, thank you. So um, that patient, did she really have dysmenorrhea? <laughs> right, right. So we needed to have figured that out before we, like, did a hysterectomy and things like that. And, and we do that by putting dysmenorrhea in the same uh, biopsychosocial model of pain. I mean, we have to look at the environmental factors for the pain. We have to look at, you know, I mean, a, a patient who has a traumatic pain syndrome, right, who's been raped, is going to tell you, you know, I had no problems. I was not, I was, no, I was, not, I was menstruating just fine until three years ago. Oh, what happened three years ago? I don't really know. And then next visit you go, so did you think about what, is there anything? Oh, well, you know, but I was raped. Okay, that's a different patient, right? And by the way, it's, I don't know if it's psychosomatic. I wouldn't call that psychosomatic, right? Because psychosomatic pain is really pain without a cause. But, yes? Well, not, my question is, 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 what is a correlation between, because I ask a lot of women, you know, were you ever molested? And I gotta say, I, I, don't, I can't think of any Right, which is really sad, right? So, right, and so the the issue there is again, did we get the right diagnosis, right? Because when we're making the diagnosis of dysmenorrhea, we are assuming that we are screening these women for these different types of traumatic events. Now, we do not yet have an association between dysmenorrhea and sexual trauma or physical trauma. We haven't documented that, and I actually don't know of any studies that have really looked at that. But we do have lots of studies that have looked at the association between chronic pelvic pain syndromes, right, and sexual abuse, physical abuse, especially in child versus adults, right? So that link is there. And absolutely, when you are screening anyone for a chronic pain syndrome, I mean, you, you have to you have to pay attention and ask those things. And this is very, again, particular to women. If you're taking care of women, at some point you have to build enough trust to be able to ask those difficult questions. So I agree with you. So there are studies now. For, yes, for pelvic pain and chronic, chronic pelvic pain and abdominal pain. And you know what's so interesting is, of course, the definition of chronic pelvic pain has changed so much over the years because we started with chronic pelvic pain, and now I can tell you, I maybe have three patients that have true chronic pelvic pain where I can't figure out where it's coming from. Maybe. Most of them have some kind of etiology for their pain, whether it's the bowel or the bladder or the endometriosis or, you know, myalgias, because our etiology map has grown so much. Yeah. There was a question back here. Yes. What a great question. So the question was, uh, is there any data for what proportion of when women continue to have pain after a hysterectomy? Yes, there's lots of data, and I happen to have done some of those studies. Uh, but about 15% of women who have chronic, excuse me, about 23% of women who have chronic pain um, 
whether it's dysmenorrhea or not. So chronic, the key thing is they have to be chronified. <laughs> and I don't even know if that's a word. But uh, we'll continue to have pain after a hysterectomy. Here's the other data that no one really knows and chooses not to talk about in our GYN world, is 14% of women will develop pain after having a hysterectomy for non-painful indications. It's a surgery in those cases, right? Right. So, you know, it's just, again, the way we've changed our practice is we, before we do a hysterectomy in a woman nowadays, there's a whole different counseling process, there's a whole different investigative process. And honestly, if your gynecologist is not doing that, so if you have a pain patient and your gynecologist is not doing that, we have a little bit of a problem, which we're working on because we're trying to educate everyone. But yeah, definitely, they, many women continue to have pain and there's a lot of debate as to whether they have pain because there's something wrong with their central nervous system or if they have pain because they just weren't diagnosed right. And we did a hysterectomy because they had a pelvic floor myalgia. Or interstitial cystitis, or IBS, right? And we know that all of those syndromes do get, so we, this is fantastic research on this, uh, the pain sensitivity fluctuates during the menstrual cycle, even for those syndromes, right? And then we got that, uh, we had that aha moment when we started giving women uh, GnRH agonists for uh, endometriosis. And then we figured a whole bunch of them didn't have endometriosis, but their pain still got better. It's because we naturally have that fluctuation in pain sensitivity during the menstrual, different phases of the menstrual cycle. Again, something unique to women, which providers need to know. Yes, sorry. So GnRH agonists, the drugs like uh, Gosarelin and uh, Zolodex and uh, what's the other name? Lupron, right? So what they do is they inhibit ovarian production of estrogen and progesterone. Basically, they put a woman into temporary menopause. And so for a long time, we thought, you know, we had all these chronic pain patients, and we could just give them um, 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 Lupron, and if they had a response, then that was our aha moment. We knew for sure that they had endometriosis because GnRH agonists were thought to suppress endometrial tissue growth. But what we figured out is when we took these women to have laparoscopy after we gave them the GnRH agonists, at least half of them didn't have any endometriosis, but their pain still got better. And then we went back and realized, oh, what's happening is, regardless of the pain syndrome that we have, that you ha may have, or your patient may have, their pain sensitivity fluctuates during the menstrual cycle. You could have tooth pain, and it's going to get worse when you're in that phase of the cycle. Funny, because everyone in this room knows exactly what I'm talking about, right? But so what happens is when you're giving someone a GnRH agonist, you're getting rid of that hormonal fluctuation, and that's how you're helping them not experience the exacerbations of pain during different types of the cycle. They're just not used to thinking of their pain in a cyclical way, but if you ask them to keep a pain diary, you'll see pretty uh, constant fluctuations in pain levels. I'm sorry? How safe are they? Great question. Well, relatively safe for about a year. I mean, we're putting women into menopause, so we have to worry about osteoporosis, skin dryness, vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and if you're giving this to young women, this is quite significant. Most of the time what we're doing now is oh, uh, lipid abnormalities. I mean, name it. <laughs> so they're not, you know, they're not, uh, they're safe. I mean, they're not killing anybody, but there's quite a few side effects. And so what we do is when we do GnRH agonist therapy, we'll do it with ADBAC. So we shut down their ovaries completely, and then we give them just a little tiny bit of progesterone to keep them from hot flashing and developing some of the side effects. Yeah. Were there more questions? Yes. 
So that's called, in our world, it's usually called vulvodynia. So the, the question is, is there an association between these complex regional pain syndromes and, or things like fibromyalgia and, and vaginal pain? Yes, that is actually very, very, very well documented in the literature. There's a higher, so if you have one of the six chronic pain syndromes, you're more likely to have what we call vulvodynia. A lot. The four o'clock talk. <laughs> but yes, there's a whole talk on it. And, uh, but yes, we do have, you know, the, there's, the, the thing is, there's a way you have to first distinguish whether this is another chronic pain syndrome or if it's something just due to atrophy and so forth. And then there's different treatments for that. But yeah, you have to, I tell my patients now is, you know, we used to spend so much time doing like a, a big fancy, all these vaginal cultures and all. Now, if I have a pain patient, regardless of where the pain is at and it's chronic, I just start asking about other chronic pain syndromes, psychiatric comorbidities, social factors. Like I spend so much more time on the patient <laughs> than I do on their exam. You know, natural evolution. Yes. In dysmenorrhea patients or in vulvar pain? Um, so, yeah, people have used uh, pudendal blocks for vulvar pain. And we do have a, a, a small portion of patients that have true vulvar neuropathies, like pudendal neuropathy. And, and some, some people want to classify vulvodynia as a neuropathic syndrome, really. And so patients do get some relief with blocks. The data is a little bit mixed. For the uterine pain, um, not, we, we, you know, it, not, I don't know that it's been well studied, that I can tell you that it doesn't work. Um, we certainly, so I don't, I don't know of any studies that use ganglia or impar, uh, blocks on, on dysmenorrhea. The issue with dysmenorrhea, of course, is it's cyclical. You're going to be doing those blocks every month, you know. But I don't know. I mean, it's a good question. Do you desensitize people if you give them some repetitive pain relief? Yeah, no, I don't know. It's a great question. <laughs> I hope you... You mentioned the word experimental. What you offer is... What is it that you offer that's experimental? For dysmenorrhea or for vulvar pain? Well, so, for example, we have a lot of dysmenorrhea people that have secondary uh, myalgias, right? So they've been in pain their whole life and their pelvic floor muscles are like this. And we use Botox and blocks for those patients. Now, is that FDA approved? No, absolutely not. It's still experimental. We're still studying that. We, we're still actually trying to figure out what is the best way to do these interventions. I'll tell you my favorite story. <laughs> I, had a pay, I was uh, in the, to, to emphasize how, the need for us to collaborate on those things. But I, had a, I, had, I was with anesthesia one day, and we, we do a lot of blocks. So I was in and out going into the anesthesia room, and he was doing, he had a female patient, and he was doing, uh, facet joint block and for back pain. And I said hello to the anesthesiologist. And as I'm walking out of the room, he says, oh, you know what? This lady has a lot of vaginal pain. I need to send her to you. And I'm thinking, duh. <laughs> like, you should have done that before you started blocking her. Because if you're going to block the lower back, we can actually, you know, add in a pudendal block and see if we can block the vagina and so forth. So it's very important for us to communicate about these patients. But, yeah. She just had atrophy. She was fine. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with it. I mean, we fixed it. What was wrong with her? Any other questions? Okay. Thank you all very much. It was wonderful.